Today we'll be looking at Matthew 28, verses 1 to 15, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The main, I'll just give you the main idea up front, okay? I think this is the main idea. Scripture is attempting to show that Jesus is Lord, and, and with His Lordship, the, the reality of His Lordship comes the truth that Jesus has all authority, universal authority, and we're going to see His authority over sin, death, Satan, over everything and everyone. Okay? Some of you know some of my favorite books I read as a, as a child were the Chronicles of Narnia. And the first one I ever read was The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's a wonderful illustration in, in that story of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where the white witch stood by Aslan's head here. And, of course, Aslan is the great Jesus Christ figure there. Uh, kind of representing the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so her face, I'm reading from the book, her face was twitching with passion. And then just before she gave the killing blow to the great lion, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, Now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, and so the deep magic will be appeased. Understood, understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. Then the white witch killed the great lion, Aslan. Lucy and Susan, you'll see a picture of Lucy there, were hiding in the forest, and they stayed hidden until the evil army had left the scene. Now the sadness and horror of Aslan's death filled their minds. As soon as the forest was silent, Susan and Lucy crept out onto the open hilltop. They both knelt and kissed Aslan's cold face and stroked his beautiful fur and cried till they could cry no more. After a while, Lucy said, I'm cold. Let's walk about a bit. As they were walking, the sky began to turn red and slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise. When the two girls turned around to look where the noise was coming from, they noticed the stone table was broken into two pieces, and there was no Aslan. Who has done it? cried Susan. Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice. It is more magic. There, shining in the sunrise, stood Aslan himself. Both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. And Susan asked, but what does it all mean? Aslan said, it all means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little farther back, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Well, in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read the books, you know the White Witch thought she had won. <laughs> and that's exactly kind of the scene we have in the Bible here. We uh, you get the idea, if you try to put yourself in the sandals of these people, that the chief priest and even Satan himself thought they had won, just like the white witch. But 
The cross is not the end of the story, is it? There's chapter 28. So death doesn't have the last word in Matthew's gospel, nor any of the gospels. But what we see in Matthew 28 is the resurrection. And so, really, the honor belongs to the resurrection here, to the story of an empty tomb, the conquering of death and Satan. And so in the end, we see that Christ emerges from the grave victorious. He emerges from the darkness into the light. And so the king triumphs. In the end, the king triumphs. So let's look in Matthew 28. Let's read the text together. Uh, I'll read it out loud. and You just follow along in your Bible. We'll start at Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly. And notice they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold... Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We'll stop there. Well, there's several reactions to Christ's resurrection here in this passage. And of course, again, we have many, many witnesses to the, to the truth of the Scriptures, validating what is here for us. Interestingly enough, we have these women showing up again. We've seen them before. Notice, uh, I'm just going to kind of go quickly go through this, and and then we'll we'll give some implications and what is what what truth can we gather from this? Okay, first of all, we see women came to the empty tomb. They came to the empty tomb, and notice when they did this. Matthew is stressing that this is Sunday morning. Uh, that Sunday was the dawning, by the way, not of a, not only of a new day. This was a very special day. It was the new era in redemptive history. Jesus ushered in this new covenant. And it is because, by the way, of the resurrection of Jesus that Christians now worship on Sunday rather than on the Sabbath. So sadly, my 
my uh, Seventh-day Adventist friends get it wrong. They're kind of still living in the Old Covenant. And I would really love for them to move into the New Covenant and do as the apostles did and worship corporately on Sunday. By the way, did you notice that not only people... uh, that, that, that the only people coming to the tomb, I should say at this point, are these women. These are followers of Jesus Christ. These are these same women who had ministered uh, for Jesus and with Jesus up in Galilee. They've, they've come, they've seen the, the crucifixion and the burial. So these two Marys are the same ones we, we've already seen. And according to the other Gospels, there was other women, but Matthew chooses to focus on these two. These women obviously thought Jesus would still be in the grave. Uh, otherwise, why would they be bringing anointing spices? They obviously didn't expect him to have resurrected. Uh, they had not come to see Jesus risen. They were coming to, to come to the grave to, to be with a dead body, to anoint that dead body. They had been among those women ministering to him those years of his earthly ministry. And now they've come to the garden hoping that somehow the great stone could be removed so that they could minister to him one last time. Well, in a way, they're lacking faith. But despite their lack of faith, they came to the tomb out of the deep affection for their Lord. And God has honored them for their love uh, and, and, and wrote about them even here in the Scriptures. Well, what happened next was an angel came to that empty tomb and rolled the stone away for them. Of course, they could not have done that. In verse 2, we see the angel doing this. There's, there's this great earthquake, then the angel descending from heaven and rolling back the stone, and then he sits on that stone. And so when the women reached the tomb, they found that the, the stone was, was removed for them. And that was a big and heavy stone. Uh, there's no way that two women could have, have pushed that huge stone, which is maybe two m- meters in diameter, and pushing it uphill could not have happened. And so the angel had come and secured and sealed that grave, and when he arrived, he rolled the stone away. However, the angel didn't move the stone here in order to let Jesus out, like some people, liberals in particular, like to say. Jesus didn't need help getting out of the grave. That's not why he did it. He The angel removes it to let people come and see an empty tomb. The angel was doing this for the people's sake, not Jesus' sake. But in verse 3, it's interesting little description given there. The angel's appearance, it said, was like lightning. Hopefully you've seen lightning. You know what that's like. It's incredible, isn't it? We we get to see God displaying just a little bit of His power every time He... He sends a lightning bolt down through the sky. And why, why, would, why would it be described this way? Why is the angel described his appearance this way? Well, the angel's bearing the character of God. And he's doing this to make clear to all observers that this is a supernatural messenger sent of God. This is not just anyone or anything. This is God's special messenger. And as a result, the Guards fainted in verse 4, it says. Uh, notice in verse 4, it says, For fear of him, that angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
They became like dead men. Well, we must remember that these were Roman soldiers. Uh, these guys were trained to, to deal with high-pressure situations, never to fall down, never to retreat, to stay and do what their, their uh, centurion, their general tells them to do. And so they would have easily repelled any raid on the tomb. Any human being coming, didn't matter how big they were, these guys would have stayed there to the end. But the irony can't be missed in the situation. The ones who were assigned to guard a dead body <laughs> became like dead men themselves. Don't you find that ironic? And then, and then the one who was dead is now alive. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a switcheroo going on here, isn't it? Quite ironic. Well, the women, they come to the scene in verse 5, and they were frightened, but they're at the same time comforted by the angel. Did you notice that? Because the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. That's typical response with angels in the Bible. Often people were frightened by them, but unlike the soldiers, they actually received comfort from God's messenger here. They weren't afraid after the angel had spoken. So they had not come to expect to find a Jesus raised from the dead. But in God's gracious mercy, He overlooks their weak faith and their lack of understanding and helps them. So He acknowledged their love, and so God responds in great love to their love. And the angel announced in verse 6 that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Notice in verse 6, He says, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. That phrase, by the way, in your Bibles, has risen is a Greek passive. It could also be, because it's in the passive, um, it could be translated that he has been raised. And, the, and here's the point, my friends. Here's the point. The Bible says Jesus had power to give up his life, and he also had the power to take it up again. Jesus said so in John chapter 10. But Scripture makes it clear he also was raised by the power of God the Father. That's what Romans 6 says. And then in Romans chapter 8, it says, He was also raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, who did the work? Well, there is one God, after all. I will remind you, one God in three persons. So, who did the work? The Trinity did the work. All three persons of the Godhead did this work. The entire Trinity is participating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ here. And so the angel gently reminds these women that Jesus' resurrection should not surprise them. Why? Because it happened just as he said. By the way, Luke, in Luke chapter 24, he actually reports that then these women remembered Jesus' words. Next, the angel invited the women to come see the place where he was lying. And at this point, the, the, the women actually go into the tomb. They're observing uh, that it, it, indeed it really was empty. And by the way, what did they actually see in the tomb? Matthew doesn't tell you that. So you have to go to the other gospel writers to find what they would have actually seen. And according to John chapter 20, they would have seen the same thing that Peter and John saw when they came in. 
According to John chapter 20, it said, They beheld the, the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. That's interesting. Uh, again, just another proof to show that the body had not been stolen. Criminals are not going to take the time to neatly fold up claws and lie them neatly there and then have and then wrap up or I should say the the wrappings was still there, okay? Just as if Jesus' body was kind of in there, it was still there, but the the face cloth was neatly wrapped up. So Jesus didn't have to be unwrapped. So one woman here here he is, he's He's wrapped up in this cloth, and the next moment he's free, leaving those wrappings behind. He had this ability to to go through objects. This isn't the first time we've seen Jesus do this. He he walks through walls and doors and flies, and he, he can do what he likes. He has that ability. Well, the angel gave these women a mission in verse 7. He tells him, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So they were to go and tell. Go and tell. Simple mission. Notice who gave them this mission. Really, it's coming from God, because the angel's just a messenger of God. And what was the mission? Well, the mission was, tell the disciples, God has raised Jesus from the dead. Why do they need to be told that? Because they still don't know that Jesus has risen. Remember, they had fled from the scene when Jesus was arrested in the garden. They fled. John, apparently John was the only one who had come to the cross. So they needed um, to know that Jesus was alive. By the way, this is just another one of those proofs of the resurrection. You, You say, well, why? Why is it a proof of the resurrection? Well, nobody's going to make up this kind of a story. Certainly not in Jewish culture. Remember, Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. Um, And he's using, of all people, he's using women as the official witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And so this can't possibly be made up. up. (laughs) There's no way. Because in Jewish culture and in their society, a woman could not be a legal witness. But Matthew's using these women as legal witnesses to the reality of Christ's resurrection. Next, in verse 8, we see the women departed from this tomb. Notice the Bible says they're departing with fear and joy. So they, they obey the angel's command, which is coming from God, and the women depart quickly from the tomb. They, I, I can imagine they've, they've got some mixed emotions going on here. They're probably kind of excited about this, but... Um, they have the angel's assurance, and so the women, they're, they're feeling some fear, obviously, the Bible says, but at the same time, their fear is overpowered by something that's bigger and stronger, and it's joy. And what would that joy be? Well, of course, it has to be the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's alive, as he said he would be. And so, as they're going, we see in verse 9, Jesus appears to the women and as the women were on their way to report this, this wonderful message to the disciples, Jesus meets them and he greets them. And it's interesting, our, our Bibles say that Jesus says, all it says is greetings. 
Uh, greetings is an interesting Greek word. It's a, it's a common greeting. It's like us walking up to one another and saying, hi, hello, good morning. You know, it's, it's that kind of, just a common greeting. We say it all the time, right? Hi, hello. Well, that's what Jesus says to them. It was just an ordinary salutation that people would give to each other if they saw each other in the streets or at the marketplace. But even though Jesus, here he, here he is, he's glorified, what is he doing? He's, he's, again, he's humbling himself, lowering himself, greeting these faithful women with a warm tenderness, just like people who, who know each other and love each other. And so these women, they came, and they, they, they took hold of Jesus' feet, they, they, they get in this position of worship. They knew this was Jesus. And now that they know it is Jesus and that the the Messiah, their Messiah, their Lord has really risen, well, they adore Him and praise Him, which is, by the way, the only proper response to King Jesus. By the way, they did what every person is going to do one day. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, Jesus gives these women a message to deliver as well in verse 10. So not only the angel, but Jesus gives a message. And notice it's kind of similar, isn't it? Verse 10. Because Jesus also says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, backing up the messenger of God, the angel is, is clearly given the right message. So Jesus repeats the angel's message. So despite the disciples' lack of faith and their their cowardice and their defection, here we see the Lord coming graciously speaking of these men. Notice how He speaks of them. Because He says in verse 10, He says, Go and tell My brothers. My brothers. A wonderful term of endearment. So, we see Jesus being very gracious to them, even the way He's speaking of them. And so when they arrive in Galilee, they're going to see Him again, and they would receive the Great Commission, which is the end of the book of Matthew. That's how the book ends, with the Great Commission that they would receive in Galilee. Well, let's move on to verses 11 to 15. We see there's a lie here that actually is, uh, again, another proof of Jesus' resurrection. And so in verse 11, we see that the guards reported to the chief priest. They reported to the chief priest. Because it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So here's these Roman guards. They probably would have been very devastated, I'm sure, by what had just happened to them. After all, they, they had failed to protect a dead body. <laughs> the dead body's gone. Well, it's no longer dead, is it? And so they're in a very delicate situation. Because under Roman rule, if you had failed to live up to your duty as a Roman soldier, most likely you would have been executed. So these guys might actually be fearing for their life, and so they don't go to Pilate, they go to the chief priest. Uh, I'm sure they're hoping to get bailed out in a way here. And so um, they, they go to the priest, and... And, of course, the priest, uh, we, we see their open rebellion against God here. 
instead of bowing to King Jesus and recognizing Jesus as Lord, the one with all authority, what do they do? They, they just outright reject him. We, we gotta figure out a way to, to overcome this here is, is what they're thinking. And so the, the guards, they go and report the truth. And, uh, wow. <laughs> just another witness to the reality of Christ's resurrection. But it's coming from Roman soldiers. And so what was the result? Well, the guards were paid a bribe to spread a lie. That's interesting, because verse 12 says, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, this is that Sanhedrin again, taking counsel together, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So they're, they're probably thinking, woohoo! We're not getting executed and we're getting paid for this. Wow, man, this is easy money. And, well, what is God doing here, though? God has foiled evil men's plots here, and so their first reaction by the priest is to assemble themselves together, let's put all of our dirty minds together, and counsel together, see how we can, uh, boy, how are we going to get through this one? This is difficult. Well, at the meeting, the Sanhedrin decided three important things. Three resolutions. Number one, notice, we need to bribe the soldiers. We need these guys to go spread a lie. And so they, they did. They, they, that was the second thing. Go spread this lie about the body. And, and number three, they, they, to protect the soldiers from possible punishment from Pilate, if he should hear about this. And so in the end, the chief priests here refused to believe in Jesus. They knew the truth. They knew it better than most people. They knew the Old Testament. They'd seen Jesus. They'd been with Him. They'd heard His teachings. They know about His death, burial, and resurrection. But in the end, they refused to put their faith in Jesus, and they refused to repent of their sin. And as far as we know, most of them, except for guys like Joseph and Nicodemus, died in their sins. Well, what was the lie that was to be spread? Well, verse 13 says the lie was that the disciples of Jesus came and stole his body. Well, just come on, hold on. Let's think about this because verse 13, this is ridiculous, isn't it? Go and tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? (laughs) There's several problems with this lie. Number one, How could these guys know that a body was stolen, let alone who stole the body if they're asleep? Really? I mean, think about that. How ridiculous does that sound? (laughs) And, by the way, how are these guys not going to hear a huge, massive stone being rolled away when they're sleeping right next, supposedly sleeping right next to it? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yet again, another witness to the fact that Jesus actually arose. So here we got a a supernatural element that's just trying to be completely removed from the story. And so the priests, what they're trying to do is, is come up with some human explanation for this. The exact same thing, by the way, that liberals continue to do today. Continue this lying of explaining away miracles in the Bible. So these were the first of the liberals, if you will, or modern-day liberals, trying to explain away the truth. 
It's just ridiculous, isn't it? In verse 14, the guards then were offered protection from Pilate. And so the message the guards were supposed to tell is, is actually dangerous. They actually could have been executed for their failure to fulfill their duties. And so the promise was a necessity here if the guards were actually going to do this. Go and spread that lie. Again, it's sad to see there's doesn't seem to be any truth left in these religious leaders of Israel. They've totally, seems like they've totally abandoned God. Uh, they're the ones who've actually become the criminals, if you will. Well, in verse 15, we see this false message was proclaimed. Matthew says that uh, they, they took the money and they actually went and did as was directed. And they continued to do this even up to the time of the writing of the book of Matthew. Notice it says it, it had been spread among the Jews to this day. You say, well, when did Matthew write his gospel? Well, Matthew writes his gospel about 30 years after this event. So somewhere around the year 63 is when uh, uh, Matthew's writing the book of Matthew. And so this, this lie has been continually spread, as Scripture says, even up to the day of the writing of this book. So these, these tomb guards were spreading the falsehood. Then the Sanhedrin goes, and they continue to spread the lie about Jesus. Well, what does the truth of Christ's resurrection actually teach? It teaches us many very important truths. Okay, th- this is one of the core doctrines of Christianity. So we need to understand this, all right? So let me just give you a few things to think about. Uh, as we think about the truth of the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives evidence that the Bible, the Word of God, is totally true and reliable. After all, Jesus himself even said that I am fulfilling Scripture. I will do this just as I said. And so Jesus rose from the dead, and he did it precisely when he said he would, three days later, in the way he had predicted So it shows that what we have is God's Word, the Bible, is true. We need to know this. We need to read it, meditate it, love it, and preach it and teach it. Second, the resurrection means that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. That's who He claimed to be. He said, I am the Son of God. He he said, "I, I have the power over life and death. In fact, in the book of John, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he shows that to be true here. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus proves that salvation is complete. See, it was on the the cross that Jesus Christ conquered sin, death, and Satan. And, And, of course, he's buried. But the resurrection also shows that God the Father accepted the sacrifice on our behalf. So Jesus is that first fruits the most important of all who have ever been resurrected. And number four, the resurrection proves the church has been established. Jesus himself said in John, or sorry, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. That's a very interesting phrase in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades. Hades, uh, the gates of Hades was a Jewish expression representing death. So Hades was a place of death. And so in, in Christ's resurrection, he's proving that death itself here 
couldn't actually prevent Christ from establishing His church. Nothing could stop Him from doing that. Number five, the resurrection proves that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. See, Jesus declared in John 5, this is what He says, um, He said that the Heavenly Father has given all judgment to the Son. Did you hear that? God the Father gave all judgment to His Son, Jesus Christ. And, And since the Son has now risen and He's alive, well, then that means judgment is certain to happen one day. And number six, the resurrection of Christ proves that heaven is waiting. See, Jesus promised in John 14... In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what He promised. And one day He will fulfill that promise. Now He is preparing that place for all Christians. And when He comes, He says, I will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So because Christ is alive through the resurrection, you know what that means then? It means that all Christians have this assurance that, that, that we will be with Jesus. We will be where He is preparing a home for all Christians. And we will get to dwell with King Jesus forever and ever. Well, I want to just finish with kind of just some application coming from the text. Because the angel's message and, and Jesus' message is, is, is very similar here. So think of the head of the church kind of giving this this message to us. There's just a few commands we see in the text that I want to highlight in verses 6 and 7. So the angel's message here has four commands, and I want to highlight these because they're just as important today as they were back in these days. Number one, come. First command is come. We see that if you look at verse 6. Uh, the angel says, hey, he's not here, guys, ladies, he's not here, he's risen, as he said, come. It's a command, it's an important statement by the angel here, because there was a lot of things that could have hindered these women from coming, but we praise God there was no excuse that stopped them from coming. See, they recognized the invitation to come was from God himself, and so they obeyed God, they loved God. They recognized where the invitation came from, so they did what they were told to do. So my friend, we have to recognize through the preaching of the gospel, the Lord invites people to come to Him. So my question for you is, as as we head toward Christmas, have you come to King Jesus? Have you come? Have you obeyed His invitation? And if you haven't, I hope you can do that today. You can. The question is, will you? Will you do that today, my friend? And Boy, if you do, Christmas will mean so much more. It will be so much different for you because the Bible says there is no salvation for you until you do this, until you come to Him. The second command in your text there is the word see. So not only did the angel say come, he says see the place where He lay. See. So what should we see when we look into the empty tomb? The angel is saying, see, look into this empty tomb, but what should we see? Well, I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. I can't possibly say it any better, so let me 
quote Charles Spurgeon for you because he preached on uh, these verses. And here he actually suggests five things for us to see as we look into the empty tomb today. Number one, you should see in Christ's grave the condescension of Jesus Christ. See the, the, the humility, if you will. Condescension is that idea of humility. So even though Jesus is God, what did he do? He, he died. Well, he, he was born in, in very humble circumstances. He allowed his body to be placed in a borrowed tomb. He didn't really own much. So we see his humility, his condescension here. And number two, you should see the horror of your sin, Spurgeon says. It was, after all, think about this. What, what put Jesus in the grave? There's nothing about Jesus that should have put him in the grave other than the truth that he went there on our behalf. Now that's what the Bible says, right? That death is the punishment for sin. Jesus had no sin, so Jesus shouldn't have died. Well, why did Jesus die? Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So that wasn't fair, was it? (laughs) And that's why you should never want what is fair. You don't want what is fair. Jesus certainly didn't get what was fair. So he took our sin and then we got his righteousness. We're healed because of him. Third, Spurgeon says, you should look into the tomb to be reminded that you too will die. You too will die. So as every time we look at a, a grave and every time we go to a funeral, every time we read this text, we need to be reminded that we are mortal mortal, perishable. So it warns us that there is an eternity to come, though, and that the mortal, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, will put on immortality one day. Fourth, you must look into the tomb to see that Jesus is not in it. (laughs) That's kind of the obvious one, right? We often think of that. Okay, Jesus isn't there. He's risen, as he said, right? But what did he do in the process? He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. So the empty tomb is just yet again another evidence that Jesus really did rise. Nobody can find Jesus' body because he's not there. And number five, you must look into the tomb to learn that you will also rise as Jesus did. The Bible says you're going to join him. He is your first fruits. You will be made like him when you see him. The third command in the text is the word go. It says, come, see, and go. And this command is a strong reminder that however tempting it might be for us to kind of sit by the tomb sometimes and mourn, and that's very easy for us to do, uh, there's actually work that needs to be done. And so the angel says this, Jesus says, go, we got to get on with it. You don't just sit around and just mourn and keep in this continual state of mourning. No, that's not what the Bible wants us to do. That's not what God wants us to do. And, and in fact, the way the gospel, according to Matthew, ends ought to be a, a little bit of a, a reminder for this as well. Because Jesus says, did you notice what he says in, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen? He says, go, go. 
And so that's one of Jesus' last words. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's your commission you've been given by Jesus Christ himself. And as you go, number four, the fourth command is you tell. And so if, if you have come to the tomb, if you've seen a risen Savior, you notice that the tomb is empty, you, you know that Jesus was raised, then we must obey. Because the risen Savior is Lord. He is the one who has all authority, and He says so even in verse 18. It says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so based on that, that foundation, we must go and tell. We have to speak of what we know. Well, that brings to mind a question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know what Jesus has done? Do you know what Jesus is doing? And do you know what Jesus is going to do in the future? If you don't, then it's incumbent upon you to find out. Because you don't have the correct message to give. You don't have this good news to give. So go and find out. And if you do, it's also important and incumbent upon you to not just sit on your hands, close your mouth, and hold this good news in. Jesus says, go and tell. We must tell people. What are we to tell them? Tell them that Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He was that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And when He died on the cross, He bore your sin. But He was buried. But He arose three days later, just as He said He would. And He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. And He's now in heaven as our, as our great high priest, there at the Father's right hand, preparing a home for all believers, for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to come again. And He's going to receive you to Himself that where He is, you will be also. That's the good news. (laughs) And so the angel says, Jesus says, go and tell it. 